Whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you are producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com, the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up. That I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. I mean, I'm really excited to have my next guest here. He also just wrote an incredible book that I just finished. Uh, It's called The Shoemaker. I have it here, if you can see it, if you're watching on YouTube. But we have Joe Foster with us, who is the founder of Reebok, and we are thrilled to have this legendary uh, creator of an incredible shoe brand with us today. We're going to learn a little bit more about the brand and his journey overall. Uh, Joe comes from a family of shoemakers with his grandfather pioneering the spiked running shoe back in the early 20th century. His grandfather's shoes received worldwide recognition Uh, when two UK athletes won the Olympic gold medals while wearing his shoes. With shoemaking in his blood, Joe founded Reebok in 1958 with his late brother, Jeff, and they followed in his grandfather's footsteps. We'll hear a lot more about that. And just last year, as I just mentioned, Joe wrote an incredible book called Shoemaker, The Untold Story of the British Family firm that became a global brand, uh, which documents his incredible story. So we are so excited to have Joe with us here today to talk to us a little bit more about growing the business, creating the business challenges and everything in between. So thank you, Joe, for coming on. Well, Cara, what an introduction. Absolutely (laughs) fantastic. You make me sound as though I... uh... Um, I did something good. <laughs> we, we tried, but thank you for the invitation. You absolutely did. Let's talk a little bit about Small Joe. So who was Joe as a little kid? Who was Joe as a little kid? Well, he was born in 1935, 
And of course, four years after I was born, we had World War Two. So really, as a, as a young boy, I grew up during the war years. But you know, you, when you're a kid, that's what, that's what life is. So it didn't make any difference to myself and my older brother, Jeff. We, we sort of just enjoyed it. You know, when you change the clock round for summertime, we had double summertime, which meant that it was light all the way through to about 11 p.m. at night. So we, we could be out there playing and enjoying ourselves. Um, yes, we could, see, we could see when the bombs had dropped on Manchester because Bolton, where we lived, was just a bit higher up than Manchester. So we could see the red glow of bombs dropping. So, you know, okay, during, during the war years, we had six years of war, and it was 10 before I, that was over. But, you know, why am I called Joe? That's the reason. Why am I called Joe? You mentioned my grandfather. He was born in 1880. It's a long time ago that now. <laughs> Mind you, I suppose 1935 is a long time ago now. <laughs> but uh, he, he was born way back there in uh, um, 1880. And by 1885, he was only 15. But he made, as you alluded to, he made first pair of uh, spike running shoes for athletes. And he wore his spike running shoes in the, in his next event. And he, he came second when he usually was halfway down the field. So he then had a business. Um, and by 1900, he, he, was, he had his J.D. with Foster business, making running shoes, track shoes for all the local athletes, which was great. And you said he, and he did, he got uh, athletes to wear his shoes for Olympic gold medals. Uh, during the first decade of the 20th century, he had three world records. A man called Alf Shrub broke three world records. He had gold medals from the London Olympics in 1908. Then we had World War Two. Sorry, World War One. When World War One, nobody wanted running shoes then, so they turned the business into repairing army boots. So the army boots coming back from Flanders and. My father used to tell his story, which was that he used to scrub all the mud off. And instead of the water being sort of brown, it was red because of all the blood and whatever that uh, of sort of fighting a war there in France. However, by the 1920s, grandfather again, this was his belly epoque. This was his, his, his decade. We, we have a letterhead. And on the letterhead, right at the bottom there, and he actually writes that the J.W. Fosters supplied all the shoes to the 1920 Olympics in Antwerp. Well, I don't know how many, whether it's just the English team he's talking about, British team. But, uh, I mean, you know, that was pretty good for those days. Yeah. And, you know, so, uh, and, and, of course, he picked up a lot of gold medals. But his, uh, I think possibly his biggest claim to fame was, have you heard of the film Chariots of Fire? Absolutely. Chariots of Fire, it immortalizes three athletes, Eric Little, um, Harold Abraham, and Lord Burley. They all won gold medals at, one. I think, one of the events was in Amsterdam, the other one in Paris, the Olympic Games. And, of course, they made a film. But uh, my grandfather had made their shoes. So he had claimed to making the shoes for those people. Unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1933. And I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday. That's wild. And my grandmother, she absolutely insisted, insisted I become Joe Foster. So I took on my grandfather's name, Joe. Mother didn't like that idea, but mother was a bit frightened of, uh, <laughs> of my grandmother. So grandmother went out and I'm called Joe. So this is where young Joe came from. And why I got my name. I love it. So did your dad then take over your grandfather's business? Well, my dad and my uncle, they were brothers. They took over the business. There was five years difference between them. My, my father was younger than my uncle. But they didn't get on. They, in fact, not they didn't get on. They had a feud. Whatever the feud was about, we don't know. We don't know even to this day. But... Uh, they hardly spoke to each other. And in fact, Jeff and myself, when we were at the factory, we had to bring them apart. But they were fighting. You know, and that's wow. not good for business. And uh, it was okay. Well, it was okay when my grandmother was there. But when my grandmother died, that was when the trouble started and they just didn't speak. 
I didn't get to the business until I was 17 years old. When I got in the business, I only had one year. When I was 18, uh, we had to do national service. So Jeff and myself, we had to go away. Jeff went to Germany to do national service. He was in the army. I was in the RAF and I went on to radar. But Jeff, he, he, was, he, he saw Adidas. He saw Puma and saw what they were doing. So when we, when we came back, and we came back to a failing company. J.W. Foster's, then J.W. Foster and Sons, it was a failing company. It, it had, a, had a wonderful history and done some marvellous things, but because father and uncle didn't get on, the business was failing. I mean, you know, you can imagine two people who own the business, 50% each, and all you do is fight. The, the loser is the business. What we tried, we tried to persuade my father, look, you've got to change. You have to change. Um, but no, it was, like, look, look, when when Bill's gone, that was my uncle. He was John William. We were all JWs, by the way. My father was James William, uncle John William. My grandfather had been Joseph William. I was Joseph William. My brother was Jeffrey William. And I had a younger brother, John William. So, but my father said, look, when... When your uncle Bill goes and I go, that'll be your business. You can do with it what you want then. I say, look, Dad, look, look this. We don't want you to go. <laughs> That's not the plan. You know, it's not the plan at all. But this business will be gone long before you are. It will be dead. It will go. Uh, it took us uh, a couple of years to prepare ourselves, I suppose, for not taking over the business but leaving the business. And uh, Jeff and myself, we we went to college at night to learn more about the business or more about shoemaking because what we knew was how to make running shoes. But, you know, you need to you know a lot more than just how to make running shoes because we needed to know where you're getting materials from, what the new techniques were. We needed to know all that. But in November of 1958, I think we'd had enough. And so we left the business and we set up our own small business called Mercury Sports Footwear in the next town uh, in a very old building. Very, very interesting. And so what was the idea behind Reebok? I mean, with you and your brother, uh, you were trying to solve a problem. So how did this come about? Well, I mean, the problem was that uh, the, the business, J.D.B. Foster business, was going nowhere. It was going out of business. Neither my father nor uncle were really that interested in taking the business forward. It supplied a living, a very nice living at the time, but that living was going down. We had a future. We were young. <laughs> we, were, we were 23, 25, Jeffrey 25, 20. <clears throat> we were young. Where was our future? That was the problem. Our future was that this business wouldn't be there. It would, it would go. And, you know, when you're that young, so you, you set up a, a business, you become an entrepreneur, you, you do something, that, and, you know, and what can go wrong? You're young. doesn't matter. You're 25. 23 and 25, we were young people. You know, what could go wrong? Well, we didn't think anything could go wrong. And so we, we decided that the best thing we could do if we wanted to uh, um, develop a business was to actually leave the, the Foster's business and set up on our own. So that was it on this November uh, November day. It was a Friday uh, when I told my father we were leaving, that we were going to set up our own business. He wasn't very happy. In fact, he, he, he got up out of his chair in the office and he picked up a, a letter opener and he walked towards me. But he gave it to me and said, stab me now. And, you know, uh, and all I could say, look, we, you know, we tried, tried to get you to come with us, to build a business to, for the future. But he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to do it. So we had to leave and we set up, as I said, we set up as a Mercury Sports Footwear. And, you know, what can go wrong? Well, lots of things go wrong. Lots of things happen. Because we were, we were only Mercury Sports Footwear for 18 months. Wow. And after 18 months, our accountant was saying, look, boys, you're doing pretty well. You know, you're making some money and that's okay. You'd better register that name, Mercury. Well, 
We were young, fairly naive still, and said, why do we need to do that? Well, they said, look, a lot of people will see your, your product. It's nice. It's good. And if they think it's that good, they'll copy it. And they can also start making Mercury shoes unless you register the name. Oh, so I tried to register the name. And I found out that it was already pre-registered. Another company, a shoe company, um, part of British Shoe Corporation, big company, they had the name. And we found out that, uh, yeah, they would sell it to us for a £1,000. Well, in those days, we're talking about 1960, we'd just set up our factory for £250, which, you know, in, in today's money is about $300. We'd set a whole factory up for that. So £1,000 was just out of sight. We didn't have that sort of money. So I was told to go and see a patent agent who would help us to um, get a new name. And the patent agent said, well, okay, but you need to bring me 10 or 12 names. And I'm saying, well, just a minute, you know, this is our company. We've got to believe in it. He said, well, to get your name registered, you need enough, and we need to test those through the registrar. And he pointed through the window. He said, a name like that, and that was Kodak. And I said, well, what's with Kodak? He said, well, that's their own name. They made it up. They invented the name. So nobody else can have that. It's not, not a name you can find anywhere. Oh, okay. So we go back, and we're sitting around the table, and we're trying to think of names. And we're thinking, Cougar. Ah, Cougar Sports, that would be good. Cougar, yes, nice name. Uh, Falcon. Falcon Sports, yeah. Put those on the list. Well, let me take you back to 1943. I'm eight years old. And uh, just like COVID, nobody could nobody could move. Oh, it's the middle of the war. The war is on, so we're not going anywhere. You know, holidays at the seaside, no, those things didn't happen then. So, uh, okay. I am entered into a running race, 60 yards, a 60-yard race, and I win the race. Oh, great. I had Foster spikes on, and the spike shoes in those days, very very few of my com competitors had spike shoes on. In fact, sure. I don't think anybody, I think it was only me with spike shoes on. And I won the race, and I go up to collect my prize. Yeah, what, do I, what am I looking for? What prize? And it's a dictionary. They gave me a dictionary. I'm eight years old. And I'm saying, where's the football? Come on, you know. Surely. No, it's a dictionary. I didn't know it at the time. It took me a bit of time to uh, recognize the fact that uh, it was an American dictionary. It was a Webster's American dictionary. And the spellings are somewhat different than the Oxford English dictionary. You sure. know, in America, you don't put a color in C-O-L-O-R. We spell it C-O-L-O-U-R, and a few names like that. So I didn't know that at the time, but uh, we're now back in 1960, and I have my dictionary next to me, my American dictionary, and I like the letter R, right? And uh, I open my dictionary, letter R, and I start thumbing through, and I get to R-E-E-B-O-K, -E which is pretty soon, you soon get to that. And I said, R-E-E-B, Reebok. What's that? And I read out what it is. It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. Fantastic. I love it. Top of the list. Now, yeah. Now, had that been an English dictionary, it would have been R-H-E-B-O-C-K. Now, it would take me a long time to go out to our age, but and, and I don't think that would have been as attractive either. So thank goodness I had an American dictionary. What was the thing that you really wanted when you decided that you wanted to create Reebok? What, what problem were you really solving? Well, the, I think the problem we were solving was uh, how are we going to make a living? Mm -hmm. okay. How are we going to uh, okay. earn some money? <laughs> You know, the natural thing is we need a job because we we know the judge we foster company is going to go out of business. What were the choices for running shoes? Um, well, I mean, we're talking about athletics footwear, which is more than running shoes. It's uh, 
soccer boots and rugby. Rugby is a big thing in in the north of England. Rugby was quite big. So we we could we could make specialist shoes, and the demand was there. Fosters had been making those sort of products, and they were losing the business. They were losing it to people like Adidas and quite a few small English footwear companies. Quite a few small ones were making the product. We we thought we could uh, we could make good product. We thought you know we need a business. We need to be continue if you like the the, the family tradition. It's in our DNA. So you know we we were we were thinking well, this this is a job we know. This is something what we know about. So if we uh, if we set up on our own, we can do the things that JD with Foster isn't doing. Mm-hmm. Now, they were not looking. They were not moving forward. They were not looking to the future. They were just looking to the past and the present. And we were the future. Jeff and I were the future. And so you know, our problem was the future. <laughs> it's as simple as that. We uh, and if. Uh, if the parent company wouldn't wouldn't continue um, growing and inventing and developing, just like grandfather had done in his day, he he was obviously quite a pioneer. And uh, to, you know, to have uh, I mean, some say he invented the spike traction. We got the idea from his grandfather. His grandfather was a cobbler. He used to repair shoes, but he also repaired cricket boots. You don't know much about cricket, I don't suppose, but. This episode of The Kara Golden Show is brought to you by FunJet Vacations. You know, one of my favorite feelings in the world is being on vacation and forgetting what day it is. That's when I know I've done it right and got my full dose of relaxation therapy. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long, term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. 
Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. We're all working our tails off these days. It's easy to keep chugging through, putting our vacations and break time on hold. But here's what I've learned over the past year. You can always make more money, but you can't always make more memories. You deserve to unplug. So go ahead and take the time away. This is where FunJet Vacations comes in. It's your one-stop shop for all your vacation needs, including flights, hotels, transfers, and those fun excursions that you'll want to do along the way. It's a fast, easy, and fun way to book your next vacation, and you can pick from hundreds of destinations like the Caribbean, Mexico, Hawaii, Las Vegas, or even Florida. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service too, so you can focus on the fun part. For a limited time, my listeners can use promo code FJ50 for $50 off your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself with where you could go at funjet.com or call your local travel advisor. Again, get $50 off your next FunJet vacation when you use the promo code FJ50. Restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by TurboTax. People think unusual or unique circumstances mean more complicated taxes. Not necessarily. And for TurboTax Live experts, those types of circumstances are what make things exciting and interesting. Maybe you've inherited a condo and have a little extra rental income, or maybe you're getting paid in cryptocurrency and aren't sure if there's any special tax implications or benefits. Let TurboTax Live experts show you how... An interesting life might even mean a greater refund. TurboTax Live matches you with the right expert who has the right experience to help. An expert for your situation probably isn't so unique to them, and having someone who can answer your tax questions right now is super, super key. Right from your phone or your computer, of course, They can even take care of the whole filing process for you, too. Whether you have your own business or are working multiple jobs in multiple states, an experienced TurboTax Live expert will help you get your questions answered. They can even do your taxes and file for you from start to finish to get you that tax savings, hopefully, you deserve. Here's my advice. You do what you need to do. Do your thing and let those TurboTax live experts do the rest. Let doing your taxes not be a headache this year. Visit TurboTax.com to learn more. That's TurboTax.com. 
I want to get more into Reebok because I think there's so many interesting okay. pieces here. So as you started Reebok uh, with your brother, one of the things that I read yeah. read is that you went into a distribution deal uh, with Lawrence Sports. And what do you think was was the mm. biggest mistake um, that you made? Do you remember that deal? I mean, what was kind of the biggest mistake when you think back on that? Well, it, it turned out to be probably the biggest mistake of my life, definitely, yes. I've probably made many others, but that was a big mistake. Um, but it, it wasn't at the time. At the time, the, the sales manager, the sales director, he, he was a good friend because you, you meet people within in the, in the business. When you're traveling, you meet these people. And he was a good friend of mine, Derek Shackleton. Um, and I knew that he would do a good job. So I could let them be my distributor while I concentrated on design, changing, looking for new ideas, and probably going to America. But in those days, I, I, I wasn't really I, – I knew I wanted to get in the American market, but I, I had no idea how to at that point. So I appointed them as a distributor. And the problem was that uh, – the should I say the the owner of the business, the mm-hmm. owner of Lawrence Sports, he was he was in his seventies then, and he retired, hmm. and he retired, and he he actually put his son-in-law in to manage the business. So his son-in-law came to manage the business, and unfortunately, he had no idea. Hmm. And my friend, who was the sales manager, he just did not get on with the son-in-law at all. So he left, and when he left. The company had, you know, if you lose your salesman, you 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 really good. Sa- you lose your salesman, you lose a lot of business, and they lost a lot of business. And the problem is that uh, they lost so much. I the story, it's absolutely incredible how how they did this. They were trying to change. They made soccer boots, only soccer boots, and soccer boots. You, you can sell them in about August because the season is just starting. And then you can re, you can have more sales in December, just before the Christmas break and the holiday break. So you can do that. But during the rest of the uh, the year, they're just making boots. They're just making the shoes. And they decided they wanted to upgrade. The son-in-law decided he wanted to go from the method they were using to uh, attach the soles and the studs to the boots. Mm. He was going to go with a nice big fancy machine which would inject them. That was okay. The idea was okay. The problem is that the machine was late arriving. They had to build a new building to put the machine in, Hmm. and they built it too small. So by the time they had this machine to make the boots, the season had gone. Crazy. And they were out of business. They just... Just uh, the business just fell apart, and I had I had to dash down to. Uh, they were about sixty miles away from our factory. Mm-hmm. I had to hire a van and go and pick up all my shoes which they hadn't sold because they stopped paying me. So I picked them all up. We brought them all back to uh, to uh, Berry, which was next to Bolton, where we uh, and we had to put a plan together. But unfortunately, I, I had to lay off half of the staff, because we now we had nobody buying our shoes. Uh, the distributor was about 75% of our production. I had a 25% with different things that we were doing and uh, own brands, different. Uh, uh, I was making climbing boots for a, a store in Manchester. So, so we had about 25%. But when you lose 75% of your business, it means I had to lose a lot of uh, employees. I had to let him off. How did you ultimately recover from that? Well, as I say, I, I think it's about 2,000 pairs of shoes. We're only a small company. 2,000 pairs I brought back from Lawrence Sports. And we put together a plan to go to all the schools, all the secondary schools within our area. There are probably hundreds of them. And we went there. We we made deals with the uh, the instructors, the coaches. And we, we were selling the shoes at... Uh, very heavily discounted price to the coaches. They could sell them to all the children. Um, but that price was better than we were getting from the distributor. So we were, we were making more money. And it took about 
of less than three months and we sold the whole stock and we got the money in and we survived. Going direct, you were ultimately able to make more yeah. money and and uh, and recover. And then yeah. how did you ultimately get to the U.S. then? Well, the U.S., that was... Uh, that was, was a different story because uh, I, I, I'd wanted to get to the U.S. I said, look, Foster's had been selling 200 pairs of spike shoes, hand-sewn, to Yale University, to uh, Bob Jane, Jack, and Frank Ryan. They were, they were head coaches there, and they were taking them, and they were selling those to other universities in America. So they have been supplying Yale, and, and I knew that every, well, every college, every university had coach. And coach was a god. And you could actually go to university on a sports scholarship. So you know, this I knew this market was so big, so vast compared to the British market, which is not a bad market, but relatively small. And I was reading a magazine, it was called Eurosport, and there was an advertisement in there from our government, from the British government. And they wanted us to export. And they were willing to pay for a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago, uh, the payout return airfare, and also half of our hotel bill. Hmm. Well, really, there was no reason why I shouldn't go. So I didn't. And this is 1968. 1968 was my first attempt to get into America. And uh, it was rather interesting. People loved the product. Oh, this is great. Where do we buy this from? And I was saying, you buy it from England. And they're saying, is that New England? No, 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 not New England. England. Across, oh, right. No. I, there wasn't the appetite there to, to import, which was, you know, it's always a bit difficult to import a product. You have to go through different uh, sure. things. So I didn't sell any shoes. However, it was 1968. And by the time I actually got into America, it was 1979. 11 years. It took 11 years of uh, knocking on the door trying. 11 years. Wow. <laughs> 11 years. It's a long time, isn't it? But, you know, America's a nice place to go to. Chicago isn't. But, <laughs> you know, Chicago well, Chicago is a nice place. But in, uh, in February, that's not a nice place to be in February in Chicago. It's, uh, it's full of snow and ice, and it's very cold. It's the coldest I'd ever known. So it was, it was really cold. But 11 years. But I think every, every third year they used to go down to Houston in Texas. And I, I don't know why that was, but they did every third year. Two years in Chicago, one year in Houston. It was great going down to Houston because it's so warm by comparison to Chicago. But uh, so it took me 11 years. But really, uh, to, to get in, this is where we had a lot of luck. Running, running started to become a big category in America. A lot of people... In the late 60s and all the way through the 70s, running grew. And with it, of course, Nike. Nike grew with that running boom. And also Runner's World. Runner's World is a magazine. I think it's still going, the Runner's World magazine. I remember Runner's World very well. <laughs> it started as a very small A4 page, but it ended up by 1975 as a magazine. Color, color magazine and telling you everything. Where you, where you should go, the races, the results. So... It was like a Bible. People used to buy it, and they loved it. And uh, Bob Anderson, who published the magazine, oh, well, he, he knew all about running, and he decided he could tell everybody what was the number one shoe to buy. Well, you know, 360 million Americans, 10% of them were now running, 36 million wanted to run, and about, we'll say 10% of those, 3.5, 3.6 million, would want to buy that number one shoe. And Phil Knight couldn't produce that. I mean, he was he was producing them in uh, out, out of Japan, and there was no absolutely no chance of turning up the production to that level. And of course, by the time the production was coming in, and the retailers were now they were stocking up with this number one shoe. Bob Anderson, after twelve months, decided we need another number one shoe. Hmm. Well, you can imagine. These shoes are just coming in. Last year's shoes are just coming in, and now he changes to another one. So the retail trade, all the retail sports outlets, they, they were up in arms. So 
Bob Anderson changed the uh, changed the strategy. Instead of having a number one shoe and a you know number two and whatever, he would do a star rating. Hmm. So he, the top, the best shoes would be five stars, four stars, three stars. And I knew we could make a five star shoe. It was, it was fairly difficult to try and become number one, particularly with Nike just being down the road from uh, uh, from Runners World. But I knew we could make a five star shoe. And in 1978, we had our Aztec. Aztec was our five-star shoe. Mm. That was our offering. We tested out. It was part of the gold range. We had a gold range in our product. Inca Inca was a spike shoe. Um, the Midas. Midas was a road racing shoe. And Aztec was the training shoe. That mm. was the one everybody would buy, Aztec. And uh, I had that in Chicago in 1979. And I got Kmart. Kmart came, and because running was growing so much, they'd heard about us, and uh, they said, we want 25,000 pairs. All right. <laughs> but for our factory, that was about six months' work. <laughs> we, we, we were only a small factory. Mm-hmm. We, were obviously, uh, we were obviously punching above our weight. Sure. But, but you know, we, we were thought in, well, we were considered in the UK to be the, the leader when it came to uh, athletic shoes. We'd, we'd really, our name had really grown. But uh, my friend Shackleton, who had left Lawrence Sports, he'd gone to Barter. Barter, in those days, was the biggest shoemaking company in the world. And uh, he was there, so he said, look, Joe, if you get orders, we'll, we'll help you. We'll, we'll make them for you. Right, good. But then came out and said, but we want a better price. Huh. And a better price meant going, going to Asia. Man, we had to go. And in those days, it was South Korea. And so, what year was this? Uh, Nineteen seventy-nine. Okay. But we'd also we'd also thought about that, I'd, and I'd made contact with the agent for a large Korean factory. They had an agent in London, so I'd made contact there. So yes, if we did get a five-star shoe, we could get it at the right price, and we could go out to. Career to make them, and <clears throat> so I thought. Well, okay, came out fine, twenty five thousand pairs. But you know, they're, they're such a big, big outfit. I thought, well, yeah, maybe that was my first twenty five thousand pairs and last twenty five thousand pairs because if if they didn't sell for the square footage that they were sure. they were going to use for, for the product, they would just skip. But also, Paul Feynman came along. Paul Feynman came along, and uh, he. His company was Boston Camping, and Boston Camping were a smallish wholesale company with tents, fishing rods, all you need for if you're going camping and hunting and fishing. Yeah, but it was only a small company. He, he was running that with his brother Steve, his uh, his brother-in-law. There were three of them. They were doing that, and I could tell when Paul came along. He was pretty what fed up of doing the same. I think for ten years they'd had this business, and they were just sort of well, we're going nowhere. We just keep on selling the same stuff year on. And he said, Joe, I'd love to be a distributor. I'd love to take on Reebok. He said, but we need a five-star shoe. And I said, Paul, come on, have a look at this. Aztec, this is it. Aztec. Yeah. Yeah, he said, okay, Joe, like it, love it. But it's not a five-star shoe yet, is it? No, it's not. Because I think it was July when the the running uh, uh, issue came out, when the shoe issue came out. And we're only in... We're only in February. Okay. So he said, look, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe, I'm your man. Right. So there's a bit of time between February and, and July. And the end of June, the uh, the issue, the July or the shoe issue comes out. Meantime, I'd been to uh, over to Boston, had a look at their operation. Very nice. It's a good salesman. They were, yeah, this would be a nice bolt-on business. Fantastic. This looks like the best option because during my 11 years, I had had at least six attempts and six failures to get on the market. Wow. It was for whatever reason, there was no penetration. <clears throat> but we were trying to push. If we could get a five star shoe, it'd be different. That would be the hook. That would get us into the market because people would love to buy a five star shoe. So that was the challenge. And, uh, so we, uh, <clears throat> I've been over to America and I look at the operation. In fact, Paul Feynman came over to the UK and looked at, uh, you know, well, how, you know, <clears throat> how, 
how big is Reebok? You know, what's on the market? And he wanted to see some of the races. But, you know, we, we knew where to take him. We knew the races and we knew who would win. And we had at least 50% of the runners would be running in Reebok. So that was great. One of the things that I know that you did, uh, you released the Reebok Freestyle in 1982, which was the first athletic shoe designed for women. Incredible. What was the response initially on that shoe? Well, it's, I mean, first of all, how did we get there? We, we got there. We came in as a running company and we're doing nicely. And we had distribution all over USA and we had representatives. <clears throat> and one of our tech reps, Arnold Martinez, his, his wife, his wife was going to these aerobic classes and coming back and absolutely full of it. Oh, it's fantastic. And Arnold said, well, just a minute. What are you doing? What are, what are aerobic classes? Well, it's exercise to music, mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. So Arnold went down to the next uh, next class, and he saw the instructor in sneakers, half the class in sneakers, the other half, no shoes. He had a good light bulb moment. There. Why, why don't we make them a shoe? Glove leather, very soft, very cushioned. And uh, <clears throat> he went out to Paul Feynman, and Paul said, look, we're a running company. You know, what do we want to do making dancing shoes? We're a running sure. company. But Steve didn't, uh, <clears throat> he didn't worry. He, he went around the back and he had a word with, uh, sorry, Arnold didn't worry. He went around the back to see St- Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our production man. And he persuaded Steve to get him 200 pairs of this shoe, which he did. He gave them to the uh, girls. They loved them. Problem is they were made with uh, glove leather. And the glove leather, they only lasted about four or five weeks. But the girls, I mean, we're talking about America, we're talking about California. The girls had the money, they spoke, they loved them so much. They didn't just use them uh, in the classes, they went to work in them, they, they wore them all the time. And when they fell apart, they went out and bought another pair. So that was great. We soon answered that problem and we got more of a garment leather. So now we have aerobics. All of a sudden, it was a woman's company. We were only a small running company. So when aerobics took off, and it took off because... Jane Fonda, she bought a pair of our uh, freestyle and she wore them in her videos, her exercise videos, her fitness videos. So this thing just absolutely exploded in, uh, in California. We were $9 million, as a running company, we were a $9 million company. Wow. Not big, but, you know, in those days, yeah. nice. <clears throat> the year after, we were, th- we were a $30 million company. Year after that, a $90 million company, then a $300 million, then $900 million. So that was the explosion I, that happened. I love it. And, and it was a woman's company. Well, I, I think like the key things that I've heard you talk about, Joe, and so many lessons learned in here, but first of all, don't put all your eggs in one basket because uh, you never know when a salesperson right. is, is uh, going to be leaving and uh and somebody that you're a a distributor that you've depended on uh might not be working out so well and i think also just all constantly watching trends along the way and then also influencers influencers have always been here right and jane fonda was the influencer then and and definitely helped you uh really get on the map for a lot of people so I think it's incredible what what you built. And what year did you actually step down to? I stepped down in uh, the end of 1989. Okay. That's when I stepped down. By that time, we had grown grown so big that that we were nearly a a $4 billion company then. And the company had become corporate. We had so many lawyers, so many accountants, and a lot of people in between. Um, I was looking after international because I put on – Paul Feynman as the uh, the American distributor, and then after that, I put another thirty distributors on around the world. So I was just traveling around the world. I was also hosting the pro celebrity tennis in Monte Carlo, and uh, you know we had a lot of celebrities uh, that came: uh, John Forsyth, Linda Evans, um, as John Collins, Frank Sinatra. We actually got there on one occasion, and Sean Connery, Roger Moore. There were, there were just lo- all these people were there. Great people, but it was a it was a life. I was I was going around the world three times a year. Yeah, globally, I was just traveling three times a year, and I would I would arrive being picked up by a limousine, go to the best hotels and eat at the best restaurants. But you know, 
it was like a bit of an artificial world. It didn't feel quite right for me. And the challenge wasn't there anymore. So once the challenge had gone, I thought better to step back and retire. I absolutely loved, I love your story. You are clearly, Joe, the true embodiment of entrepreneurship and talking, I mean, your book, The Shoemaker, as I mentioned before, it's right here. So, so interesting. And coming from, you know, an entrepreneur uh, that I am, I just, I really appreciated so many of the challenges that uh, you went through and the tenacity, the creativity, the ability to just figure it out. And at times when things are hard, think, you know, what can I do in order to move forward? I read all of that and and felt all of that in this book. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing a little bit about your journey. And everybody needs to pick up this book, The Shoemaker uh, by Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok. Uh, and thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And definitely, if you like this podcast, uh, please give it five stars, subscribe, and you can also follow Joe uh, and Joe Foster. I know you're on Twitter. And uh, what other social platforms are you on? We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're we're on all the- You're on uh, all of them. uh, Social media. We're on social media. Because, you know, we have just one more objective left in life, and that's guess to get to book, the book to be a bestseller. I love it. I love it. And definitely pick up a copy of the book, and hopefully everybody will get a chance to uh, pick up a copy of my book as well, Undaunted, and uh, two entrepreneurial books together. Uh, it'll keep your weekend interesting for sure, and uh, I hope everybody has has a great rest of the week. So thank you so much, Joe. And thanks everyone for listening. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure and uh, an absolute delight. Thank you very much. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening.